All right, everyone. So on Empire, you obviously know that we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto. And that is why we are super excited to share that we are hosting the Digital Asset Summit. We've hosted this since 2019. It's coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. You can get 20% off with code EMPIRE20. We'll see you in London. This episode is brought to you by the Chronicle Protocol a cost-efficient, transparent, and decentralized oracle. Chronicle has developed a next-generation oracle primitive called Scribe, which reduces oracle gas fees on L1s and L2s by over 60%. You'll hear more about Chronicle later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Northstake, the secure and compliant staking platform for institutional investors. Northstake's ETH staking service lets institutions earn staking rewards while maintaining maximum flexibility on all of their capital. You can learn more about Northstake's institutional staking services by clicking the link in the show notes or that QR code that is on your screen right now if you're on YouTube. Now, let's get into the show. This, okay, is good, this is good content. This, this is good. This is good content. Well, I'm, I'm almost died last 15 days. So you go by Jacob, on. huh? I go by Jacob on Starbucks. Like Starbucks is no business in. Well, I should now. I will change it, of course, because you know I don't know. But JJ, you Dick, are so paranoid about being doxxed. No, man. I'm not, I mean, look, everyone's doxxed. I think the reality is, do you want to realize it or not? But you know. Could go by different names. Do you ever think of like, what if your name was, I don't know, Andrew? Well, people call me, it's funny because people call me Yano, but my name is Jason. Like all my friends, everyone on crypto Twitter, even even some of our employees call me Yano, but uh, but my real name is Jason. So yeah, 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 I guess. So anyways. Dude, we had a big, it was a, uh, well, first off, you ran the marathon. People haven't heard I, about I that. So you ran the marathon and you had uh influenza it turns out while you ran the marathon so that's pretty ridiculous <laughs> i was feeling pretty bad a couple of days before flying in and right before i started running the marathon i never cramp up but you know when you feel like your muscles are pretty they're like twitching and they're ready to get cramps i'm like i haven't even started running and i'm feeling my legs like they want to cramp up <laughs> so it was like i was pacing a good friend of mine from back home so i kind of was so like, does that right. mean you were one of the guys with the signs you know the guys with the sign like i mean you know, i was t- I wasn't one of the guys with the size because I wasn't doing it for everyone else. I was just doing it for a good friend of mine who's actually a prof- used to be a professional cyclist. So guy can run. He wanted to break sub three and I was on a mission. So we both clocked sub three. I got to say it's probably, probably the hardest. New York's always hard, but this was, I went to a deep, dark spot to finish it. <laughs> I was struggling the last couple just, of just pu- Just pumping Avicii. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I even stopped the music. I was like, I don't want to... Yeah, it was just... Uh, it was difficult, but we finished. So, so it's funny. Everyone started around the same time. Like, I was tracking probably six or seven people, and everyone started around the same time, except you started way ahead of everyone else. So I was, like, in my apartment, just, you know, kind of eating some food, and, right. and then I was like, oh, I wonder when, like, I'll pull up the map of everyone, and everyone hadn't started yet, except you were probably half mile out from my apartment and i was like oh shit (laughs) (laughs) i had a feeling you were uh you were there Uh, by the way brooklyn is probably my favorite used to be manhattan when you cross the bridge and hit fifth uh sorry first just so many people but brooklyn is just so narrow and everyone's in the streets i think manhattan's gotten because i watched at around eight miles and 25 and a half mile marks and 
It, uh, Brooklyn's just more, um, it's like more grassroots community, rooting people on. Manhattan feels very touristy. It now, Yeah, because now they have barricades and stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah. Anyways, fantastic. So, I love doing this. Nice work. Sub three with influenza. We'll take it. <laughs> 257. Yeah, I'll take it, man. That's what, six six thirty minute or six thirty five? Six thirty five, yeah. Well, what'd your buddy get? Uh two fifty nine. So he just wow. made it by under a minute. Yeah. Wow, nice, nice. But who's yeah. counting? Who's counting? Uh, yeah. Um all right, so we have uh we have DAS coming up March eighteenth to twentieth. You're speaking, got some big names uh lined up. Mm-hmm. Um really cool. So I, last two weeks ago we lined up a bunch of the big institutions. Um, Goldman, BlackRock, folks like that. This past week, we lined up a bunch of the big LPs. So we've got a bunch of big LPs that we're announcing. Uh, unfortunately, so we have a competition internally that we're running, Santi. Each podcast basically gets a discount hmm. code. So right now, On the Margin, Mike's show has driven 10 tickets for DAS with the On the Margin code. We have driven zero. Now, I will say, I got okay. kind of the, I, I didn't actually record our ads until about... Couple days ago, so they they just started going live the DAS ads in, in, inside of these podcasts. But I will just say we're getting rocked, so people got to go use those Empire Twenty codes. Oh yeah, no doubt. Um, we'll also, I'm coming to London. Um, I'm go- I'll be in London December fourth. We host this thing called Blockworks Beers. I'm bringing Blockworks Beers to London. So December fourth, mm-hmm. if you're in London, uh, holler. First fifty beers are on me. That's great. Should be really exciting. And last bit of housekeeping. I passed you on Twitter. Oh, now you're counting? Like, I passed you on Twitter. You still haven't even shaved your head. So like, <laughs> you're, you're, you have no right to make that a housekeeping item. Uh, and But sure, fine. fine. Okay. Higher for longer, bald for longer, baby. No more. I was going to shave all my beard. And in, as a good friend that I am, I'm be like, all right, if you shave your head, I'll shave my beard. But... I mean, it sounds like a deal of the century to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, rocked. Um, mm-hmm. All right. Congrats. You deserve it. You've been tweeting some really good takes. I have not. So, you know. It's funny. I tweeted this thing about Jupiter. This is actually kind of nuts. I, I, so I used Jupiter um, oh, yeah. for, the, for the first time. And I've heard, been hearing amazing things about Jupiter for a while. And so I was like, all right, I actually got to start mm-hmm. playing around in Solana DeFi. So I used some stuff. And I played with, D, uh, with Jupiter and had this like, <laughs> Really, really phenomenal experience. Um, mm-hmm. First, starting with the Phantom Wallet, like it was a really easy integration with Phantom, with this with this place where I hold my assets, and then um, and then Phantom into Jupiter. Trade was seamless. Took like a second to settle. So, anyways, I posted it, this on Twitter, and the response initially was like all of these Solana folks getting really excited. The tweet got like a thousand likes. It, you know, it was very exciting. And then what happened is by the end of the day. My inbox was flooded and actually people were like screenshotting it and publicly posting being like, this is what's wrong with crypto, undisclosed, Hmm. paid shillers. I was like, wow, that's like, I think there's two communities. There's one was the ETH community, who I think maybe is feeling a little upset that the price hasn't gone up. But then it was a lot of like the kind of like shitty L1s from the 2017 era who I think got burned a lot by the YouTube, the like YouTube influencer crowd and um, probably got dumped on a lot by those folks. So it was just interesting to see that happen. Well, first of all, look, we had one of our best episodes this week uh, with Joe McCann. Uh, I've been following him. Look, he can be loud on Twitter. The guy uh, has an interesting take, uh, interesting thesis on Solana. He's a technologist, you know, Node.js. You know, when you unpack, when you first hear him, 
he approaches it from a trading perspective. And then he, when we asked him, Hey, look, can you just go deeper in your thesis? And look, there's, there's fundamental, um, behind his thesis, there's fundamentals behind his thesis that I just think is perhaps not as appreciated. Um, and look, when you and I were talking about like, so what should we talk about in this episode? I think this is a kind of environment where a lot of people, and I can talk about all my conversations over the last 10 days, been with a lot of allocators, a lot of fund managers, and they're all asking the same question. It's like, what's everyone doing? I feel underexposed. And am, I, am I late to the trade, basically? Like, can I, I, should I, I enter now or should I wait? That's the question everyone wants that, to Should I enter now or should bit, I wait? Not only, absolutely right. And it's not just retail. It is every other fund manager. What I want to impress on people is fund managers are humans. They have an emotional whirlwind as well. And and everyone kind of goes through this, right? Hmm. Uh, people are going through, like in the public markets too, like am I underexposed to NVIDIA or AI? And you look at the latest 13Fs and like it's obvious that, look, managing your emotions is the most important thing, especially in crypto where stuff is so volatile. And uh, anyways, I think this could be a good episode because it's, you know, we're not necessarily going to cover the news, but I think it could be a good one where we can well, just go deep. Maybe, on. maybe we can start there, Santi. I'd be curious to... Yeah. We've talked a lot in the last probably nine months about like how we've both positioned our portfolios headed into what I think we thought was going to be uh, starting to be an up market. And I would just be curious to get your take on how you think about if you don't think your portfolio is perfectly allocated right now and you see um, there's a new investment, let's say, that you want to allocate to, but that has run up from, let's say, a dollar to three dollars. Mm-hmm. Are you waiting for that pullback? Are you just entering? Like, how do you think about timing entries on uh, investments that you think you want to allocate to, but you you might have been late to? Um, it's a great question. Uh, one, I don't think there's a perfect allocation ever. Um, and and two, I'll go back and make like I'll make a general statement. Like, you at some point need to just understand what your time horizon is and what you want to get out of it. Um, and that really dictates a lot of things that you do from there. Um, and so, for instance, during the pod with Joe, I had, a, I had an idea. And I asked him the question, do you think Bonk outperformed Sol? Because to me, it was absolutely yes. Right. If you long sold, then to me, feels like Bonk outperforms. Like it's just higher beta. Now, of course, it could be super volatile. And so... One of the things that I've learned from, and I've heard it from like multiple really good traders, Stan Miller, for instance, good, great investor. He says, look, we don't make a ton of, if I like an idea, I'll put in a trade and then we start doing way more work, but you have to put in a small amount to justify putting in the work. Mm. And I think, and psychologically, it, it really helps because even if it had a huge run up, well, it warrants doing way more, uh, you know, spending more time analyzing that. Like, why did it run up? How, how, how far can it go? And one of the things I've been very wrong in crypto, and I just, it is my operating assumption is, I will have very little understanding in how quickly or slow my thesis manifests itself. Like my price target. And, and having targets of, of when it's, of what happens once it reaches that. So, you know, for instance, like Bonk, you know, I buy a small amount. Um, thinking that if I want to allocate a hundred, I will buy 10 or 20 uh, or 30 and then, and then do more work, try to talk to the team, try to monitor the position. And, and from there, it's just easier because psychologically for me, the worst is having a great idea and not doing anything and, yeah. and, and thinking that you can do more work. Um, 
and at some point it's like, well, how much work, how much work is enough to, to put in opposition? And so for me, I, if I, if I have an idea of have a, a hunch and intuition, I'll just buy some and then do more work, um, with towards the goal of allocating more over time. So you won't really look to enter. <laughs> let me, let me take, um, I don't know. Let's, let's use a real example here. Let me pull up a chart or something. Well, look, Solana. Look, I, I publicly, I said in this pod, uh, Solana hits eight. I think it's a good buy. Um, did I buy my entire amount that I wanted to? It's okay, a difficult. Yeah. Let's it's use a that difficult. Like, so Solana hits eight. You buy maybe a little bit. You buy maybe some more at like 10, 15, then, but then it goes on a crazy run, right? So now it's sitting at like 50 or 60 bucks today. Okay. Six, I think 60 bucks. But 60. you're like, well, I want more exposure to Solana. But I, there's this psychological blocker because you're like, fuck, I could have got it at you know yeah, ten or yeah, sure. bucks. So then, are you? How do you like? Maybe this is a real example here. I don't know if you're currently considering mm-hmm. allocating more, but like, how do yeah. you, how do you play that? Well, there's two and, things. One, and do options come into this at all? Because it doesn't have a great, great, great question. Because uh, we did talk a lot about options in Joe's uh, episode. So, um, I think in the case of Solana, it's a difficult question to say how. Did you allocate all you wanted to? Because over as the price goes up or as fundamentals improve, the desire to allocate more may increase. And so when you ask the question today, once that has happened, well, naturally, you have a skew towards saying, I wish I allocated more. But at the time, it just felt like a good allocation as a percentage of my portfolio, as a percentage of what I wanted to be liquid versus carving out for other stuff. So it felt right at the time. Because I don't think you ever want to position yourself in a really, really uncomfortable spot, right? And, and so I think um, I, sized it, I sized it what I felt appropriate at the time with a goal towards allocating more. Um, the question around, okay, it's, it's, it's had a huge run-up, right? I mean, if you look at a price chart, I mean, it looks exponential. Gravity at some point, you know, has its toll and... These things, you know, even Joe mentioned in the episode, you know, they took some profit. So there's naturally people that take profit. Um, that to me feels like a game of trying to play like near term, um, you know, uh, kind of like try to be cute on the price. The real question for me that I'm asking is, can Solana hit 500 bucks? Can it hit 400? Can it, can it as a percentage of ETH market cap? Um now, let me ask you a series of questions, like probabilistically, and I asked Joe the same. It's like, oh, Solana sitting at 60, 50 now. Do you see it having a greater probability of hitting 100 or back to 20? And so I asked yeah. a series of these questions, okay, yeah. like, because, because there is this idea of reflexivity and also as more price, you know, the price action is important. Like this idea of reflexivity as prices increase, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy where the fundamentals improve, more developers right. are interested. Everyone wants the price to follow on-chain activity, but really on-chain activity tends to follow price. So, so let me ask you then this hypothetical, which is let's say you believe something like, um, you, you believe Solana is going to run, we'll keep with this example, Solana is going to hit $500 in this market um, and it's at 60 bucks today. Are you trying to time that and come in at a, are you looking at things like funding rates and volumes mm-hmm. and, uh, open interest and, and you're trying to time maybe an entry at like 40 or 50 bucks. Are you like, look, I think it's going to 500. I'm just going to enter the market now. It depends. I mean, I, I pay attention to funding rate. Like yeah. in this environment, like when I just see a, a very quick run up, what I've learned and observed every time I think I'm not going to see a price again, there's probably the time where I'm going to see it. Um, like 
you know, there, there's that meme where traders or people in Twitter say, this is the last time you see Bitcoin below right. 30K or three. And it just, uh, when I see that type of like exuberance, uh, I just, I'm cautious of, 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 of like building a position. I like to buy when, when days where stuff is down, yeah. uh, just kind of, you know, like it just, when there's a, a pretty big deviation in price, like, you know, down 5%, down 4%, down 10%. Th- those are the days where I come out and, and like to just, you know, chip at it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, it is, I appreciate trying to play cute a bit. Uh, you know, rationally speaking, you might say, Hey, if you think it's 500 on the margin, doesn't matter if you buy it at 55 or 60, it does on the margin, like just marginally. Um, but, um, but it just there's something psychological about just buying on on days when the market's down. Yeah, I think people forget too. On on, I remember the road from three. I think it was the road from three to twenty k for for Bitcoin, or maybe it was uh, one to twenty k for Bitcoin. There were six different pullbacks of mm-hmm. over thirty percent, right? So that was six different times you had the ability to enter the market at a thirty percent pullback. So yeah. Uh, I, I have a slightly different take on that, actually. Yeah. I um, I think it's nuts to try to time. I think it's there's timing the market and then there's trading the market, too, by the way, which are two. Yeah. So I have a lot of friends right now who are basically trying to trade their way to hire to a, to a bigger stack. And to me, that that's always seemed like a crazy, a crazy strategy. And I think the like helpful framing for this in my mind is actually to re- remove yourself from crypto right now because it's too in the day to day of the moment. Let me let me frame it like this. And I f- first actually heard Michael Saylor talk about it like this, and I liked it. 2007, Apple launches the iPhone. By 2009, Apple gets the Apple uh, the app stores. And if you understood anything about software back then, you would start to understand that iOS would become this new ecosystem that was maybe going to be as important as the web. And over the last, you know, that was 2009. Over the last 14 years, the mobile wave is now responsible for creating let's call it 5 to $10 trillion of wealth. And it seems nuts to me to look back and say, could you imagine someone saying, I get how big the mobile revolution is going to be, but I'm trying to time my entry into Apple stock in 2011, right? I'm buying and I'm, I'm basically like, you know, Apple's trading at like 20 bucks. I'm basically trying to time this entry at, at $18. Or can you imagine trading Facebook shares? When did they go public? 20 14, I want to say, or 13. Yeah, like absolutely. Trading. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 was a, I was a JP Morgan when I was a JP Morgan that IPO happened. No one understood. Very few people understood how they made money. Like social so I, media. I did this with Facebook stock, actually. I remember because um, I was on Facebook all the time back then. That was like the dominant social platform. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I want to buy some Facebook stock. And I was, I, I like was very new to the investing world. And I think they IPO'd for like either 12 or 20 or something, somewhere around then, around there. But I remember saying, oh, I'll wait for it to pull back so I can enter. Like, are you an idiot? Like, do you not under, did like, did I, yeah, yeah. I don't, and, and, and so then I missed Look, that, I, right? And then you, uh, absolutely. every time it goes up more, you, you psychologically are like, well, I saw it. At it 20. will, it will hurt more. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, look, I, I, I want to impress, I definitely agree with the strategy, you know, that, Time w- would have been better served back then. Pick pick your stock, Facebook, NVIDIA, Solana, to spend more time understanding the long-term value fundamental drivers of, of that. You know, instead of trying to, you know, cute your way, like buy your way into NVIDIA between 400 and 500. Well, is this thing going to actually be a 2000 
then understand CapEx, understand their right. chips, understand, go and listen to the acquired pod where they do like four or five, six episodes of like understanding NVIDIA. Same with Facebook, right? So I definitely agree with you, um, you know, in terms of if you're going to, as a percentage of your time, 80% of my time is spent on understanding, for instance, Solana. Okay, well, how many developers are actually building? Like, what are the problems with this? Like, one of the things that we didn't spend enough time on the on the pod with Joe was, what are the problems with Solana? Like, no. it, it it is unrealistic to assume that the network doesn't have any problems. And I understand Fire Dancer, and I understand, you know, reliability is improved. That maybe justified the move from 8 to 60. Um, but... You know, I, I think uh, it just gives you way more comfort if you have a long-term understanding yeah. of if Solana doesn't have a fair shot of, of being anything close to what ETH is or more. And if it does, then you're absolutely right. Does it really matter if you bought it at 40 or 50? Or even ETH, right? You think, you think ETH is going to be this generational global state network, global state computer, and you're trying to get it at 1,800 instead of 2,000? Like, it's not going to matter. It's, it's, it's a blip in the chart if you, if you yeah. zoom out. So, yeah, you know, I remind myself, and I was talking to my, I'm, I'm in New York, I'm talking to a lot of my friends that are not in crypto, our venture, and, and the question really is, like, categorically, I continue to believe that this is the best investment that you will be able to make, like crypto as a whole. If you were to bet on the crypto market cap expanding, I think it's the best bet that you can make um, over the next 10 years. Like, average crypto, uh, average venture Top tier, I was talking to like Vance, uh, has delivered like 2x or so, at most 3x. Like if you delivered 3x in venture, you would have been like the best performing venture fund. Now that's like 2017 or 2015 cohort. Forget about the most recent cohorts that raise way more money. And in venture, like in crypto, I just think that like it's at least a, a 10x from here in terms of market cap over the next five, 10 years. And I don't see any opportunity, and I've dabbled in other asset classes. I don't see as clean of a trade to do that. Um, and so if you think about it that way, like just allocate and, and yeah. go about living your normal life and do research and read. Like, yeah. It's a mental bandwidth too that comes from trading. It's like you could use all of that energy on, on something else. So let me ask you this. I don't, I don't know how comfortable you're sharing um, or how, how transparent you want to be here, but what, what does your portfolio look like right now positioned into kind of the end of the year? Uh, very long, um, you know, within crypto or just uh, within crypto, within crypto. Uh, well, a lot of my portfolio is in early stage stuff. Doesn't have a token, you know, stuff like scroll for instance. Um, and I was, I, I am and continue to be really active in investing in, in privates. Um, have you adjusted, now, have you adjusted that strategy at all? I've been thinking about, you have to also think about, okay, once that there's a token attached to a project, how you think about kind of the long-term prospects of it. So yeah, like naturally there's a big part of the portfolio, like oh, probably 50% of it that is liquid. And that is concentrated in ETH and Solana and projects that have had a token that launch like Blur, for instance, and others. Uh, Aptos and you know, there's projects that you know, none of this is financial advice, but you know, these are projects that I've invested in and have a token, right? Arbitrum, um, and so you know, Arbitrum as an example is an interesting one because 
you know, I'm still locked up. Uh, I invested when I was a verify and then I invested personally in, in two rounds. Uh, I know the team very well. <laughs> and the question is, do I, what do I do with that? Do I rotate back to Ethereum? Do I uh, buy something like Solana? Um, and it's always that relative kind of trade that, I, that I'm thinking. And my calculus is, okay, if I've already clocked in a certain return, what is the probability of it doing another 5x from here? Because I can always take that money and invest it in, in an early stage project at a $10 million valuation. The probability of that doing a 10x is greater than perhaps a much later stage project to do a 10x within a you know five-year window. And so it's always that relative calculation and always thinking of probabilities. Like I, I just love framing it that way because it has given me much, much more clarity in saying, do you think ETH is, you know, hits three before it goes back to one? Like what, like what's the skew? Um, and do you think, you know, what's the probability of ETH on a relative basis doing a 10X versus Lana doing a 10X? Like, what do you need to believe for that to be true? Well, how, you know, and there's some, there's some trades that, or some inv- I'm going to use trades and investments here interchangeably. I know I shouldn't be. So if I do, please apologize. I'm more taking this from a perspective of an investor first, because to your point, trading is just extremely hard. I don't, I've never met anyone that has systematically been good at trading in crypto. It's just hard. And so I approach it from an investing standpoint. I think your mental, there's more clarity when you start expanding your timeframe towards at least a year or two. Like there was a portfolio manager that called me and said, in the next 10 days, what would you buy? I'm like, I don't know. Like throw a dart to the board and see if it sticks. Like it's just impossible, I think. Um, but um, on a, like thinking of it in, in probabilities has helped me rotate from privates to liquids. Um, hmm. And also just thinking about the duration of my capital. Like do I want to skew more liquid? Am I comfortable, you know, skewing more towards – you know, illiquidity and longer duration. And so general things, but I'm happy to go through examples, but th- that's. So, so I mean, when let's, let's yeah, let's go keep going down that rabbit hole. So when you start allocating more to liquid right now, like how do you start to think about that? Mm-hmm. So here, here's some frameworks that you could think about. Okay. Solana has gone up a lot. Um, other L ones should maybe there's, so there's this big bear market trade, big bear market L two trade, right? Optimism, Arbitrum kind of had their time in the sun um, during during the bear market. You could say, okay, maybe that was a bear market trade. All right, bull market trade. Solana's gone up. All right, maybe there's going to be a new rotation into back into the L1s actually. Uh, okay, mm-hmm. so what are the best L1s out there? All right, well, then does it happen in like Aptos and Sui and like Monad and some of these folks? Or is it maybe in the kind of older, is it the avalanches and, and folks like that? Like, is that the way that you think about these things or, or, or am I framing mm-hmm. it differently? Um, I heard it from Kobe, actually, which is, a, I think, one of the best investors in crypto, has been. And he's been around for a while. <clears throat> and I heard from him. He said, look, my best returning investments were ones where I missed the first wave. And then I identified the second or third best. Mm. So, for instance, you missed Bitcoin. I think you did a huge Litecoin position. Um, and And so... Oh, he's not saying the a second. Lot, he's not saying the next wave up. He's not saying I missed. No, the for first. instance, for, yeah. And so at the time, for instance, I had missed Axie. I had an allocation. 
it was small for the fund. And so we didn't do it. But you look at, that's where I paid a lot of attention into, okay, like there is something here that is touching a nerve, like gaming, this play to earn, whether you believe it now, today or not. I think we can talk about things that are hugely overlooked in this market, like gaming. Um, but then at the time I was like, I missed Axie. And, 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 and I, I paid a lot of attention into that and said, okay, what do I do now? And then that led me to invest in Alluvium. First check in Alluvium after Kate. Um, and, and then do a number of other gaming deals. Uh, was it premature? TBD, right? These things take a long time. But there are, but that's what I'm trying to say. Mm, uh, for instance, so, so, so now let, let's bring it back to Solana. A lot of people, I said, oh, I miss Solana. It hit eight. I'm so stupid. Like I should have realized like there's fundamental, like we, how many times have we had Anatoly here? Like, you know, we've talked about this. We, we, we constantly like revisited the thesis publicly here in this pod. Um, and so the, the real question is, I think it's just a bunch of noise to, to look at something that has gone from, first of all, it didn't die. Second of all, there's been a lot of headwinds like, you know, the FTX estate and, you know, how much has been confirmed, but, you know, there's sell pressure uh, of, of estates. And it's like, well, now maybe the best, you know, if something didn't die and survived and it's done this price action, like, then I think it warrants a closer look, actually, um, because of all the benefits. Like, ETH was ETH because it made a lot of money for developers. Like that's the best way to build community. And so Solana is in that similar position now where a lot of the developers got an, a bonk airdrop that's not worth, you know, half a million bucks. Like, do you think that doesn't, comp- like if that's not computing into your thesis of, of the network effects that that will have in attracting more developers and funding more projects and the rotation of wealth that has been created within the ecosystem um, towards other projects, then I think you're missing the point. Uh, so... So yeah, you almost want to pay more attention when projects had this kind of breakout moment. And Solana's having that yeah. breakout moment. Um, and that's hugely positive because it computes every you gotta believe that every other project out there is thinking, why am I not deployed in Solana? Um, and every fund manager is certainly reaching out to more funds that are more Solana focused and saying, I feel grossly underexposed. What do I do? What do I buy? Yeah. And and that's just the nature I think of the state we're in right now. So Joe talked about event driven investments versus fundamental driven investments. So I'd be curious about how you there's two ways to think about that, right? DYDX moving, you know, launching DYDX chain, yeah. uh, Uniswap turning on the fee switch for everything. Like there are these like events that happen, moments in time that you can trade around versus yeah. fundamentals saying uh like if you take that thing DYDX. Yeah, yeah. So, well, okay. Impossible to do event-driven trading, I think, in a systematic manner, because it's 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 like doing merger arbitrage. Yeah. How much of that's priced in? Like, a lot of people understand the happening as an example. You know when it's going to happen, but the fundamental question is how much of that is priced in, and no one really knows for sure. Uh, right, DYDX, the unlock, like unlocking events, um, and and other things that you're looking on chain. Everyone kind of understands. There's a great website, by the way, that shows like all the different unlocks and when they're happening. Like it's programmed. Like you want, you can expect token it, unlocks. But they do a great job. Yeah, and so token unlocks are one of those things where the data is all over the place. There have been 
bullish unlocks. They've been bearish unlocks. They've been muted unlocks. Um, and so for me, it's, 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 I think it's important to understand what the sell pressure is, what the token inflation is, like how many more tokens are going to come online, who's going to actually buy them, who's a marginal buyer, uh, why would they buy? But it's very difficult for me to make a uh, to make an investment solely or just around these type of catalysts. Now, I think you can you can perhaps more interestingly look at that catalyst and say, okay, how how did this you know maker, for instance, was one where we talked about publicly here in this pod and said, okay, we knew that the long term holders like E sixteen Z and Paradigm were selling. But what do they know that I don't? Like they've been holding this for years and i think you can you can take event you can take these discrete catalysts or events to inform your fundamental long-term view on a position like have they lost conviction on maker or why are they selling versus who's actually buying these tokens and so those are things that are pretty interesting because you can understand on chain why these things are happening in the similar manner that you can inspect 13fs and saying okay what what does stan Druckenmiller know about nvidia or why are all these hedge funds selling oil and gas stuff? And and take that and ask yourself these type of questions. Because the, the, the question, I think the, the biggest, I'll say this, the biggest problem when someone comes into investing is not focusing nearly enough on price. You know, and to take your example of Facebook or, you know, back then and today, you could have said, God, I use this thing all day long. I mean, it should be worth a ton. But what is a ton? Like, what is that price, right? Or similarly, someone might say, God, Amazon's everywhere. Like, it must be hugely valuable. I'm just going to buy Amazon stock. It's like, well, it's like when you go buy, like how are Mark's like about this? When you go buy a car, like the first thing you ask is, what's it worth? Like, how much How much am I paying for this? And, you know, people don't nearly do enough of an analysis of saying, what is this? What should this thing be worth? Now, crypto is really, really difficult because I don't. There's not a consensus of how you should value these things on cash flow or anything. It will take a long time, but it's hard, right? Like, like how do you value Bonk? How do you value Solana? Well, I think Solana is easier to understand on a relative basis to Ethereum. I think that's the comp. And do you, do you believe that it can actually hit what Ethereum is, or even be better than Ethereum? Then I think. That's how you take a look at it. And then, of course, the question is, well, is, should Ethereum be worth that much? And it's a difficult exercise, but I think it's one where you fundamentally just have to have a view on relative valuation. I think that's probably the thing that is most useful in crypto right now. Mm. Like, one, starting on what is the aggregate? Like, should crypto be worth at least a trillion or a trillion four? You start kind of asking questions well what's it worth to be able to seamlessly move money around the world for a lot of people like untethered capital markets uh what are the use cases stablecoin use case enough to justify all this activity how many users do we have like what's it worth okay is it worth at least 10 trillion like well digital gold eight value of you know seamlessly transacting the internet feels like it should be worth way more than 10 trillion um What's a value capture? And then just like if you fund if if you if you have a lot of conviction that crypto will be at least a ten trillion market cap, I think that's a good like plant your flag and have a discussion around that. And we can have it here. I, I fundamentally believe that it it will be it will be worth more than ten trillion in ten years. And so if you believe that, 
it's a 10x, there will be things that may do 100x or 1000x. And it's really understanding what are those things that are going to do that. Maybe they don't exist today. Um, but um, I think that's that's how I would start like and then like invert from there hmm. uh, and then saying, OK, what is Bitcoin is perhaps more narrow, but something like Solana being able to power NFTs and gaming and payments and you start seeing stuff like Circle and, and stable connectivity there and certain use cases that are not possible in Ethereum L1 or L2 today, like something like Drip. And then you start, I think for me, then you start building a conviction around, okay, Solana could be a leader in this 10 trillion plus asset class. And it's worth today, I don't know, how much? Yeah, let's take a look. Well, D- does that make sense? It, it does make sense. Do you frame, when you think about your liquid portfolio, Santi, do you have, is it one bucket or two? And what I mean by that is the way sometimes I think about my portfolio, I'd love to hear if you think this is the right way or the wrong way, is almost two buckets. One is, one are uh, assets that I have a price target on, basically. So let's say there's a token trading at 20 bucks. Um, maybe I'm going to trim half the position at 50 and let the rest ride for the bull market, and maybe the rest of rest of it I'll start trimming at like 100 or something like that, or, or 300 or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Then there are assets like Bitcoin. Uh, if you come came out of the 2017 cycle, it was really just Bitcoin for me. Coming out of the last cycle, it was Bitcoin and ETH, where I just I could never bring myself to hit this hit sell on Bitcoin and ETH. Um, and I kind of feel like I have these but two. Like, like why, why, why not? Because you just don't want to exit crypto. I just don't, yeah, I just don't want to, I believe that Bitcoin and ETH will be two of the most fundamental networks to the, for the, for the, for the next hundred years. And to me selling those, I'm like, I'm going to hold, I'm going to hold those two assets for the next 50 years at least. So why mm-hmm. am I? How much, how, how much do taxes compute in your thinking there? A, a decent bit. A de- they have to, com- they have to compute in that, in that calculation, right? Do they? Because do, do they? I mean, let's say let's say you bought ETH at two thousand. Let's say someone's entering today, mm-hmm. and you're selling it at, and you you buy one ETH, wow. and you're selling it at ten thousand. That's an eight thousand dollar capital gain. You're paying, you know, if you depends how long you hold it for, but you know, fifteen twenty percent on that. That's a that's got mm-hmm. a factor, in, no? Some might say you just have to think about what is a relative opportunity. Well, elsewhere. actually, I mean. That? No, it's it's not a tax decision though. It is a I know that I, I want to hold these assets for the next fifty years of my life. So why am I trying to basically right. trade in and out and trying to what I'm doing by sure. selling is I'm trying to time the market. Um, sure. So that's but I but it sounds like you you think that's not the right strategy and that every asset, no matter how well, generational it is, should should have a price target on yes. it. Yes. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Like I I I have more of. And I came in and invested in crypto from a pure venture perspective. Like I'm going to buy Ethereum because I, I was investing in open source at the time. And I felt that it was, Ethereum was a huge unlock for open source development with a token as a smart contract. Like, and, and then I wake up three months later and, and, and the prices went from 75 cents to 18 bucks. And then Vitalik is selling. And I'm like, oh, what? Like crypto just forces you to have more discipline in risk, in risk frameworks and management. Uh, you know, Joe talked about, and, and you know, the, once a position hits a certain percentage of the portfolio, you, you, you kind of have to take some profit and manage that. Um, and, and I think uh, where one of the things where I focus more of my attention is, is this risk management? Um, 
I think you have to, uh, because not paying enough attention to that is going to force you to position you to probably do dumb shit. When a position becomes more than 30, 40, 50%, 90% of your net worth, like you have, like, you, look, I, I commend and respect people that have never sold a single ETH. Like, I've known these, like, they participate in the ICO, they just still hold the bag. I'm not one of them. Um, maybe I'm more stupid. Maybe I'm more or less disciplined. I don't know, but this is where everyone's just very unique and they're in their, if your time horizon is forever, you're a Michael Saylor. Okay, fine. But I still think that you need to pay more attention to, to risk management um, and, and protect your capital. Um, like, I, and so I, I, when you're making, like when you're making an assessment of going into a position, I think you need to have some sort of view around when, when and where, like at what price would I sell this? Mm. And one of the things that I constantly remind myself is I continue to make a 10x. I'll become the best and richest investor of all time. Am I going to do that probabilistically? No. Like I don't think I'm that person. And so once I do 100x in one position, I start looking very closely into I know the odds are con- going to be way stacked against me. You know what I mean? Like once you start making and, – and, and this was a bull environment that we were like in last cycle – once everything goes up, like it's not you, it's, it's the market. Like you're not that smart. And, and I think it's important to constantly remind yourself of that. Um, and, but, but you would say, why would I sell my Bitcoin or ETH to take the other position and say, and invest in what? Real estate? Eh. Stocks? Maybe. I don't know. Bonds? Interesting today. Maybe not so much down the road. Um, my best advice, and I don't want to give advice because everyone's different, is insulate your lifestyle. Get to a point where you feel really comfortable allocating whatever money you have, a pocket of money that it's not going to compute. Because then, but the problem then becomes it always computes because even if you threw in a thousand, punted 25,000 bucks in the ETH at the ICO for. I got to say almost everyone that became life-changing money. So what do you do from there? It's hard. It's really hard. Crypto does like, I think we should feel incredibly, incredibly fortunate to be investing in a market that, and I tell this to my normal, like former boss, he was a KKR, first analyst at KKR, like killed it. And said, I probably have lived through more cycles in if you've been in crypto for a while, I think you've lived through more market cycles than most professional investors that are in, in their 80s. Like you've just seen a lot. And that is a great education. But I don't think anything really prepares you for the type of wild prices that you see in crypto with liquidity. Yeah. yeah. All right, everyone. So we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto on Empire. Santi and I are both headed out to London March 18th to 20th for BlockWorks' eighth ever Digital Asset Summit, DAS. This is an institutional buttoned up conference that we've hosted since 2019. I like to joke that it is probably the last remaining kind of suit and tie event in crypto. People are still wearing suit and tie. It's pretty funny, but you'll actually hear from a lot of the largest institutions in the world coming from Standard Charter, FIS, JP Morgan, Framework folks coming out, Wintermute, Van Eck, Goldman Sachs. There are a couple big themes of this conference. One, Bitcoin catalysts, the halving and the spot ETF. Two, a view 
from the buy side. Three, RWAs, tokenization, and stablecoins. Four, global regulatory frameworks. Five, institutional infrastructure, including banking and payments. And six, the macro case for crypto. If you have anything to do with the institutional side of crypto, you have to be there. Santi and I got your back. We hooked you up with a 20% off code. It is Empire 20. There is a little competition running internally at BlockWorks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So help Santi and I out. Register with our code and you get 20% off. That is Empire 20. Today's episode is brought to you by Northstake, the secure and compliant staking platform for institutional investors. Northstake is purpose-built for institutions that want to enable the ability to move in and out of staked ETH seamlessly while controlling all aspects of their fund management. Northstake's tokenized ETH staking service offers institutions easy, low-risk crypto yield opportunities. It complies with both AML and MECA regulations, making it possible for institutions to tap into Ethereum's growth and earn staking rewards even through these pretty turbulent regulatory times in crypto. If you are an institutional investor seeking compliant crypto exposure and yield, Northstake streamlines that all for you. To get started, head over to northstake.dk forward slash tokenized hyphen e hyphen staking. I know you're probably not going to go to that long URL, so just click the link in the description of the episode That'll take you right to Northstake's site. Or if you're on YouTube, scan the QR code on your screen right now. Now, let's get back to the episode. This episode is brought to you by Chronicle Protocol, the best on-chain source for cost-efficient, verifiable data. For anyone who listens to Empire a lot, you know that we talk a lot about MakerDAO. Well, Chronicle Protocol is this novel Oracle solution that has exclusively secured over 10 billion in assets for Maker and its ecosystem since 2017. And for the first time ever, super excited to share here that Chronicle's Oracle service is now publicly available for anyone to use. Compared to using other Oracle services, Chronicle offers a 60% reduction in gas fees. They have an unparalleled level of transparency at Chronicle. They offer a dashboard that allows anyone to track the genesis and trajectory of the data it provides, marking this milestone in on-chain data availability. Chronicle is endorsed by a network of the most revered validators, including Etherscan, Infura, Gitcoin, DYDX, and MakerDAO. It is time for a paradigm shift in Oracle development, a future where data is verifiable, operational costs are contained, and the possibilities are immense. You can learn more about Chronicle at chroniclelabs.org. That is chroniclelabs.org. So do you have a price target on ETH where you're exiting some of your position? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. You know, and, hmm. you know, ETH at three to four. Now, I have a, a view that ETH probabilistically can hit a 10,000. Um, um, I think, you know, and I can unpack that, you know, in terms of I'm of the mind that L2s are very positive uh, and then they will flow back to like L2 activity will flow back to L1. I understand that some people believe that like Joe, for instance, we had had this conversation. Um, I think, you know, you have to believe that more users come, that the use cases are there. Like all of that factors into the thinking of why I could reach 10K. Um, and, but, but yeah, I think at, at that level, like, and, and along that way, I think the relative attractiveness of investing in something that could, that could at that point do a, a cleaner 10X versus Ethereum is how I would think of rotating mm. capital from ETH into privates. <laughs> 
And it's really just that relative. I'm not necessarily leaving the system. I'm just thinking there's better investments that I can make that I think I can 10x my capital or 5x my capital. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't sell all of it, but I would sell chunks to fund the private portfolio. What's sure. your equivalent 10K number? So 10K for ETH, what's your equivalent number for Bitcoin? How do you think about that? Well, Bitcoin's really hard. Again, a commodity, it's base supply and demand. And uh, it is it is a bit harder for me to, like, what do you need to believe for Bitcoin to go from 35 to 100K, 500K or 350K? Uh, in terms of flows of capital, it, it's much, much more. Just a more mature asset. And so you start saying, what do I need to believe for that to be true? Well, I think you probably need to see a lot of a lot of hedge funds, traditional allocators come into the asset class. You definitely need probably sovereigns to start buying this. Um, what does the world look like in that state of the world? And the thing that I have historically struggled with Bitcoin is that I, I think it's an interesting non-sovereign store of value. At the time, for a long time, it was really the only one game in town. So if you wanted to, you know, take your money and and and, and move it, it was really useful. But now you have stable coins. Now you have other assets where you can do that. And so I struggle to to believe like um, one in proof of work, one in the secure, and two in the security budget of Bitcoin, and three in the false starts of of developer interest and activity on Bitcoin. Um, I think it's really challenged. And if the developer community is, is tough, then are they going to figure out the security budget? And and I worry about that. Uh, and so I've started paying, like I, I perk up when I see developers talk about these things, but it's not enough for me to, like I feel much more comfortable holding some like ETH and even Solana or stable coins uh, because the use case is much, much more narrow. You know what I mean? Like, like 8 trillion, like historically the thesis for Bitcoin has been Gold is eight trillion or so that we know of. Like eight, eighteen, what is it? Ninety-four percent of all gold has been mined into existence. Like we know the kind of the reserves, but you know it's a hard asset. You know Austrian economics, yada yada yada. You know gold can get eight trillion. Great, that becomes really interesting. It's a eight x, ten x from here. Or so, um, but I just maybe it's because I'm more like in terms of a te- like technologist. I believe you start building a case as to why something like Ethereum or Solana can be far, far larger than that. If they power a number of different applications, like a sediment layer for the internet, like what's that worth? Now the, the value capture is the, the TBD because we just don't know how much value will be captured out of those use cases. But this is where going back to your example of Facebook, the learning that I had back then was I haven't seen a network that has had wild like that has had very strong demand and usage and not accrue a ton of value. And this is a mistake that so many people did with Facebook back then and other social networks. Like if a network really has this amount of traction and demand, it will, it's easier for it to figure out value accrual and capture. But if you don't have that, then you really, you're in a very tight spot. And that's what I see with Bitcoin. I don't see that problem with some like Ethereum, Solana, you know, because they're just powering so many different payments and, you know, e-commerce and all of these things will come on chain, I believe. Yeah. And the probabilistically, what do you think? Is that going to be Bitcoin or is that going to, that flow is going to go to Solana or Ethereum? That's a smart contracting platform. 
And that use case is is like that fundamental use case and demand driver is very powerful, I think. Yeah. Will continue to grow far, far more than the demand for Bitcoin. And I just have way more conviction on that and predicating my investment on that versus buying digital gold. Yeah. What about the other bucket, which are which are the apps? Like when you think about the liquid yeah. a liquid strategy, like I'd be curious how much of your liquid crypto portfolio is allocated to something like Uniswap, DYDX, mm-hmm. Aave, Rollbit, GMX, kind of these not the not the network mm-hmm. state, not the layer, but the but the applications on top of them. Well, I invest a lot in that layer on the private side. And then like, like, like Blur, for instance, you could argue is an app layer. Um, you know, it sits on top of Ethereum. Uh, it's a marketplace for NFTs. Something like that was a big position of mine, went, you know, on the private side now has a token, right? Um, the question I think you're making is, would I want to hold Blur or would I rotate back to, to owning something like Ethereum or an L2 or Solana? I think it, de- it it depends. Um, there are a couple of things that compute in my thinking. One, it's just been a thing where most investors have favored investing in infrastructure. Uh, now, you could say that the marketplace is infrastructure, but uh, I think it, the market cap of let's let's just put it this way: the market cap of L twos and L ones has been far is far larger than apps, right? You look at DeFi combined is is minuscule relative to all the L1s and and L2s. Uh, The market just understands and likes these type of things. Um, I say that because it is important to compute in my thinking of, okay, well, it's it's sort of the family feud way of of investing, which is it's not so much what what you believe to be the right answer. It's like what others also believe. Um, You know, at the end of the day, these are all, you know, investing is the price reflects a consensus. and so, look, I, I think Blue's really interesting. I think DeFi is very interesting, right? You start talking about things that are overlooked. overlooked. Um, like DeFi is is overlooked. Yeah. Um, the value capture, the, the problem is, of course, these are general statements because the value capture is has been difficult for some apps. Um, you know, you could argue that the biggest value capture, if a network gets a lot of demand, like the simplistic thesis for something like Solana is, you don't have to be right about DeFi or NFTs or gaming to really take off. You just assume, okay, if there is growing demand, like either through MEV or others, like fee, like accrual for validation, like that network is going to benefit from all that. And it's easier to make just one bet, that bet, um, like MEV capture, like, you know, you would have done far better investing in Ethereum and, and L2s than investing in DeFi over the last two years, because you could argue that most of that value just has gone through MEV. Um, but I think going into, like, as I think about how I position my private book that eventually will become liquid, a lot of it is DeFi. Um, I think you you said it in, in the episode with Joe, like the like DeFi hasn't stopped working. Um and you could argue that it will continue to work, continue to accrue value, some protocols better than others, as more activity happens on chain, they might use DeFi protocols on the back end, right? Uh, like games and, and like tra- if, you, if, you're, if you're trading in-game assets, maybe that happens on a DAX that you don't even care about or know about, but 
that fee accrual like happens, right? Um, where I feel a bit underexposed is probably at the wallet user aggregation layer. Mm. Um, I think wallets historically have been tough investments, but like something like MetaMask is hugely profitable. Like, you know, so you, know, you buy consensus equity, I guess. Uh, full disclosure, I own consensus equity. But, um, but like, you know, they're, they're charging a fee swap on, and users are very much not like price sensitive to these fees as, as much as institutions. So anyways, I'm rambling a bit. I don't know if there's anything specific you want to unpack, but I would say it's, it's probably 20%, 25% at most of my portfolio of app layer stuff yeah. that can change very dramatically uh, depending on how these privates like perform and if they ever have like become liquid. But like, let me ask you a question. Gun to your head. Would you prefer to invest in Solana or like Phantom Wallet? And say Phantom is valued at 100 million, 200 million. Solana. Why? Uh, because anybody who uses, I think any a- activity that happens on Solana and ends up either direct, directly or indirectly flowing back to the sole token. Um, however, Phantom's probably going to have a lot of competition. I, I like Phantom a lot, by the way. I use Phantom, but they'll probably have competition yeah. from someone like Backpack and. Yeah, Backpack, uh, MetaMask will, I don't know if they've already done this, but I'm sure at some point they'll launch Soul Support if they don't already. Um, Mm -hmm. They'll face a lot of competition. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, Um, What about What I do think is interesting, though, Santi, is right now there are only two, we're bucketing these in two different buckets. There's basically the the network layer, the the L1 or the L2, and then the app layer. But if you look at how SaaS SaaS ended up uh, evolving, uh, folks were kind of selling a product, which I would define as the app layer in crypto. Uh, and then a few, and a ve- very few of them, uh, but but a couple of them were able to evolve into the uh, into platform businesses. So you look at Salesforce, for example. Salesforce is no longer a product business. They're not a SaaS company. They are a platform company. Now, they, their business yeah. model is SaaS. It's software business. But they are a platform company instead of a product company. And I think a few a few applications in crypto are going to be able to make that um, are going to be able to expand into platform companies. And I think the first one that will do this successfully is Uniswap. Uh, and Uniswap is going to do it with their hooks. I think everyone's right now kind of sleeping on hooks. And I think if you actually talk to some of the developers who are on ETH and who are building marketplace businesses, and there are a lot of folks building with the, with the I think it was V4, with, with, the, with, with uh, mm-hmm. Uniswap hooks right now. And I think it'll be interesting to see a couple of these apps evolve from just apps into platform businesses. Yeah. And the monetization there is just more activity, more fees. Um, I'm sure there's a more right, right bell curve way to answer that with the monetization. But yeah, I think like the left bell curve way is yeah, more, more activity, more, more fees. Yeah. Cause I mean, you're looking at Uniswap at a fully diluted 0.3 billion circulating four. So a lot of tokens have been, you know, in circulation, like 80% of the tokens are, you know, 70 five six percent of the tokens are in circulation um the the protocol itself generates a lot of fees that are going to the admin contract the company itself is now generating interesting fee streams so perhaps you believe that they're not going to sell the tokens and um you know so you look at the fees and say okay well yeah like i believe hooks are going to generate way more fees and it's trading at so and so you know this is a cash flow this is the p multiple um that's like a 
a fundamental way to, of looking at it. And uh, you could say the same for Maker. And like, I, I at some point believe that that type of thinking and investing will be rewarded in crypto. Even though I appreciate that also a lot of it trades on just memetics and, you know, again, like social consensus and people like, like Bonk, for instance, you know, it's a culture coin and you can't laugh that off. I think in crypto, I think you, crypto gives you a really deep appreciation for culture um, and, and, and how valuable it is. We've just never had it. I mean, there, there have been perhaps ways to express these views, but it's very real. And I think it's a challenge uh, coming in as a professional investor. Like if, if, if you go to a conference and you, and you say that the, the best investment you can make is something like bonk, like you'd be laughed out of the room. But again, like uh, as someone, a CMS loves to say, do you want to be, do you want to make money or do you want to be right? Uh, and there's all these different types of investing styles you can have in crypto. Fundamental, for instance, has perhaps not been as rewarded as momentum and some of these other strategies. But, uh, you know, I think where you can get into trouble is trying to do a lot of different things in terms of investing styles. Yeah. Uh, because of FOMO, because other the, the worst feeling for a lot of people is not being able to process that other people are making more money than you. And that leads you to do really, really stupid things and that's probably the state where some bitter folks or some folks become bitter because they see the success of solana and they can't stand that because they miss the trade i think that's actually the the toughest the that's arguably the best point in this entire podcast is bull markets end up being entirely relative right bear markets it feels like you're all in this together and bull markets you end up having a lot of fomo every day whether if you're running a company someone else is always making more money than you um launching a token, whatever, billion, billion dollar market cap, whatever it may be. If you're, you know, investing, there's always someone making more money than you. Um, and I think that, that does end up becoming the the hardest part of bull markets for a lot of people. And it's also the reason a lot of people end up losing money at the end of bull markets is by the end of the bull market, they've, you've gotten so fed up with that feeling that you end up levering up a lot and using leverage to try to catch up with mm-hmm. your peers. Um, yeah. But remember, I mean, it's almost the what happens on crypto Twitter is almost what happens in real society with with Instagram, right? Where the only thing that people are posting on Instagram is the best, prettiest pictures of themselves. The mm-hmm. only thing that people are posting on Twitter, uh, on crypto Twitter, are their are their wins. But remember that there are a lot of losses happening behind the scenes as well. Absolutely, yeah. Look, anxiety is very real, and I think uh, the the other more refreshing take I think is for a long time, my public market investing was not interesting to me i've now had to dabble a lot in, in public markets uh for a variety of reasons and i've actually l- really liked that i want to do more on public and liquid even in crypto the market is like a a truth machine in some capacity and you know i think it you could say well it's it's very humbling if you're wrong um and it hurts for sure but i think you know it's actually incredibly the opportunity to kind of like refine your thesis, go on this journey of, hey, I want to find value. I want to understand my own investing style and framework and learn from others. And if you're intellectually curious, like I just don't think there's a better journey to make than invest in public markets or even private markets. Like it's uh, it's incredibly rewarding. Like you just continuously learn like and you can never stay put and idle like you – you know, you can 
you cannot do anything over 10 years, but that doesn't mean you're not processing information. Like you could hold ETH and not care about anything else. But maybe throughout that journey, you probably have had to look at and process and reevaluate your thesis constantly. Um, or maybe not, you could have just like invested and, and left. But uh, the more the more interesting thing is once you buy something, even if it's a small amount, you have a vested interest to continue to learn. Yeah, uh, That was my first approach to investing in crypto. I wanted to learn more about it. And so I just punted money that that I'd gotten as a bonus, uh, JP Morgan, and was like, I'm going to learn about this. Like, how much does a university course cost today? Well, maybe at the time it was 2500 Now it's probably 3000 bucks in America, which, which is crazy. But, you know, that's a good sum amount of money. It's like, am I going to learn more here than a semester of, you know, economics 101? I guarantee you're going to learn way more in crypto than what you're going to learn in a cookie-cutter university class, Psychology 101. Like, you're going to learn about anthropology, game theory, po- politics, uh, you know, economics, finance, everything. Like, it, 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 it is the best education that you can get. So that's probably worth at least 5,000, 10,000 bucks. Yeah. University costs 250,000 bucks. So, you know, if you can afford that, like this is a better education than a, a four year, like bullshit course in economics. Like this is, you're not going to learn shit in college. It's a professor is pontificating about risk. Go and punt these meme coins and then you'll understand risk really, really quickly. <laughs> you know, what's funny about that. The, uh, the oxymoron is that, so a lot of my friends and I went to Emory in Atlanta, Mike and I both went to Emory and all of our friends who went, who got business degrees ended up going into, you know, with like, like business in the, in the capital B version of business. Right. And right. Um, Mike and I were our only two friends who didn't study accounting or the markets or, you know, what, what finance or whatever it was, corporate finance, right. In the business school at Emory. And uh, I was a history major. Mike was a classics major. And I think it's no surprise that the, the history major and the classic major ended up falling falling into the crypto rabbit hole in the way that we did. Well, you know, like uh, JP Morgan, we used to hire a bunch of people that have studied the classics and not business because it is harder to rewire the brain of someone that has studied finance yeah, and maybe not think in first principles versus other majors are more malleable and more open to learning yeah. uh, and, and doing inquiry. Um, and I think, look, it, a lot of people miss DeFi investing in something like Uniswap because they fundamentally believe order book models are just superior and didn't really appreciate the the distinction and the value of having something like an AMM, price discovery for tail end assets, being a market maker for retail, like all of that is. So I think it, it serves you well to constantly be open to learn about new different models. And um, I think this is what we try to do in this podcast, like Solana and Ethereum are, are different type of are the most different type of L2s. Like Solana is the most different type of L2 relative to ETH. All the other ETH EVMs are just similar on the margin, but Solana is actually the first to be very different in their monolithic approach and yeah. and, and the team's different. So like, if it's interesting just to pay attention. I'm not asking you to, to go and rotate all your ETH and buy Solana, but at, at minimum, if you're holding ETH, you have to pay attention to something like Solana. You, you just have to. Right. Um, I think if you're if you're a professional like money manager, even more. Um, um, so so yeah, I, th- I think. Uh, but the the anxiety piece is something that as we head into what I think is, you know. I don't know how much we're in a bull market for sure. Like flows is something that Joe like we all look at stablecoin volume and say okay like there has been an, an uptick. It broke the trend of just going all down. Right, stablecoins are flowing into the system. That's very positive. 
we'll see how that holds up. Like we can start talking about things we want to see for this bull market. I think a lot of people are asking that question too. One is have I missed a rally? You missed this rally, but are we in a more sustained period of, you know, more capital flowing into the space? Maybe that's something we can just talk about like now because that's also probably computing to a lot of people's thinking right now is, is this actually real given all the macro backdrop and everything else that's going on? Yeah. I don't know if you have a view. My, I always thought the bull market was going to come like mid 2024. That was kind of my framing for it. And what's happening right now, uh, I, I'm opt- I want to be, I want to be excited about this market right now. I really do. But I'm a little concerned about the way about how it feels like we've all gotten a little out ahead of our skis with this market. Mm-hmm. And specifically, like, in my mind, a healthy market is a Bitcoin led market that flows into ETH and, and, th- and then and then converts into some other assets. And look, not all crypto bull runs are going to be the same. But the, the fact that alts are running so far ahead of uh, what I'd call like the majors right now is a little concerning. That's one bucket. Um, the other bucket is I do just flash back to the Binance IEO bull market at the end of 2019. And where the the thing that ran back then was really these IEOs and, and the alts, if you remember that. Binance launched their initial exchange offerings ap- two years after the ICO yeah. era. And that kicked off this little like two to three month bull run at the end of 20, I think it was like fall 2019. And then we had the, the this violent crash Obviously, you remembered March of 2020, and then we got the mm-hmm. very extended bull bull market. So, mm-hmm. this has been super fun. This this has been awesome. I am cautious though about mm-hmm. saying I do, I do think this is the start of a bull market, but I am cautious about saying like it's only up. It, it, I don't think it's up only from here. I th- I, I do think we get it's a. No, I mean, could, we could. It's we never could, up only. I guess. No, I, I mean from 20 from March of 2020. To November of 2021, it was basically up only. That was 18 months of up only, um, yeah. and it was uh, it was crazy. But to I be do, fair, I, but to, during that period, I mean, there were days or moments or weeks where you had a lot of volatility, and you know, a lot of people days know, and weeks, but not months. Sell. Like what I think right. could happen is that we have either months of like months of consolidation around here or a violent mm-hmm. pullback. Like I do think this is the start of something real, but I don't think this is like the start of the up only period that would be my high level take on it yeah i think you're right in assessing like bitcoin stability and in price increase is probably very indicative along with stablecoin inflows yeah Um, because uh, you do need more capital to enter the space like so the question is like what has led the solana rally Uh, i think a lot of that is rotation into a trade um of of the you know I guess you could say, well, ETH hasn't moved much. Bitcoin has, and that new wealth is flowing into something like Solana, uh, perhaps more than Ethereum. And so the price action on Sol is much more yeah. um, powerful. You know, it has been more um, you know, interesting than what it has been for Ethereum. Um, and the, one of the things that I don't fully understand is where is this capital coming from? There is new capital coming into the space. I wouldn't say it is like allocators in the U.S. like like pension funds. It's more perhaps in other jurisdictions. Like if you look at macro, like China has eased from monetary perspective, right? And they're getting helicopter money because there's you know the, the government is worried about like real estate and the economy there is not doing as well. So you know other central banks are easing. So there is new capital coming in from other places, not the U.S. 
Um, but I do think you probably have to see, you know, flows coming in from the U.S. to, to see, uh, yeah. Yeah. like, resume, like, actual prolonged bull market. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that you can't make money. I mean, you can make money in any market environment. Like, like I think some of my best deals at the peak of the bull market last time at a, like, very sensible valuations. And I think some of the best teams, like, appreciate that. Don't get caught up into, oh, I can raise at 100 or 200. I'm just going to go and do that. I think they stay disciplined and raise. Uh, so that's actually a really good signal. Um, but you can do terrible deals also in this market. Like, And, and so, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think the private market still very much – like, because, you know, like, the private market took was the last to adjust. Like, valuations of the private market were the last to adjust to the, to the bear market. I think now you're seeing the opposite where – Valuations of seed and Series A, Series B, are probably are still very much in bear market. You know, these are like two and a half million, five million dollar valuations. Like teams are raising the bare minimum because they know they can't get it. I spoke with the largest fund of funds in crypto yesterday because I had an idea, and they're like, no one, no one is interested in crypto right now and they, they skew us right yeah um so it's just interesting um you know i mean i told you we met with the i think probably largest financial data company in the world this week and they just cut that was the thing i was telling you this on telegram they just cut their entire crypto team they just <laughs> they do a segment their, every day an hour segment every day on they crypto. wiped out their entire crypto team in very soon, they're making some more cuts to other crypto folks at the company, and wow. they—it's uh, just Are not. You hiring they did them? the same thing in 2019. They they capitulated the bottom, and then they ended up building back their product team, their research team, their data team, their editorial team, and now they're doing it again. And it's uh, it's just crazy to see them. That just seems the highly irrational to me because crypto, like crypto, cranks out. If it's up, like the only thing that's up only in crypto is headlines. Like you can always, there's always interesting things to report on in crypto, like. It's because they, this is, this is where, so there's a fine line between looking at the data, listening to your customers and having conviction on a bet. And this is a, an, a traditional institution over optimizing on listening to their customers instead of having a, instead of having conviction on the future. That's what I would say. And do you read that to be a bottoming signal or a more, more? I mean, it was a bottoming signal in 2019 when they, when they basically laid off their whole crypto team in 2019 after so they so bitcoin ripped they spent 2018 building mm-hmm. their crypto team and 20 end of 2019 they they laid them off and that was you know mark three months away from the bottom um mm-hmm. i don't know it makes us excited it's another it's another four-year cycle where where blockworks can, can can dominate basically and and it gives us four more years four more years of a head start on them uh, which is exciting are you putting in more money into crypto now outside like your crypto portfolio or are you just rotating within um my personal portfolio or blockworks yeah. as we invest no no, no. Uh, your um, personal portfolio um i put in more a lot more like 6 months ago when we were talking maybe like 3 or 4 months ago when we were talking about this um mm-hmm. i did invest a little bit more that like about a week ago okay um as i as i started to see a, starting to rip we yeah i started to really like press i would say i just had a bunch mm-hmm. sitting in usdc because you know what kills me is uh when you have to transfer from your bank into into 
whatever platform that you use, whether it's yeah. you know, Coinbase or Gemini or whatever, you know, what Binance or whatever it is, that, that like two or three three day window, if you have it, so, which sometimes it like transfers automatically some or instantly, and sometimes it doesn't for me. I never really know why, but that mm-hmm. lag kills me. So I just yeah. I've had a bunch sitting in USDC uh, and just earning. I think it earns four or five percent right now on the on the platform that I use. So mm-hmm. yeah, I just allocated a bunch of that USDC. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I've been uh, dabbling more in public markets, and one of those is is Coinbase. Um, I think it's again none of this is financial advice. I, I always ask. It has been an interesting question for me. When when someone's interested in crypto, I always ask them, "Would you invest in Coinbase versus Bitcoin versus the majors? Like, do you think Coinbase is going to outperform?" Um, because there are multiple ways to to have a, a view and express your view on crypto. Right. Uh, you know, maybe in a tax efficient manner, or maybe through options. Like options have been tricky because yeah, they're not very scalable. Like now, you yeah. don't have as much market makers. Like you can deal with folks like Galaxy and whatnot. But you know, if you want to, if you want to scale this up, and it's 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 a bit difficult uh, to do. Um, but something like Coinbase, you know, it's certainly a much more robust option market, and you can do some interesting things yeah. to have exposure to that. And I always pay attention to Coinbase because. You know, there's analysts that obviously produce like research reports, and I think it's a very probably one of the best like barometers for sentiment uh, towards this asset class. Um, and and it it's still very. Uh, I think it's one of those names that is very not properly understood. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, we both put on a decently sized Coinbase position. What three? It's my largest position probably outside of like in, in the public markets. Yeah. But same with me by far. Uh, um, now, of course there, there are challenges and whatnot, but I think the market doesn't appreciate like all the different components and, 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 and what it's doing today. Uh, differences. I just bought Coinbase spot. You have some ridiculous, you know, call straddle yeah. seven different names, whatever, whatever it means. Uh, but uh <laughs> Yeah, well, we, like we, we are both expressed. I'll love. tell you, I'll, I'll tell you what, like, well, this is where I, I when I say it's probably the one, one of the most under misunderstood names is the willingness for the market to, to short it and pay you an inordinate amount of money coupon to go to like just have a long view on it. Yeah, and I think the skew is overly negative on this. And look, it's a very volatile name for sure. Um, but when I compare the volatility of Coinbase to other volatile names in tech and, and just similarly volatile names don't pay this high of a coupon. And that to me leads me to believe mm. that the market is just more negative on some like Coinbase, right? Because if the vol is the same for two assets, with crypto instead, the vol is the same for two assets, but the coupon is mar- like not marketing, but meaningfully higher. Like I- I'm saying like a, a turn or two higher. Like a volatile name and these instruments, like Phoenix, knows what it is. Maybe we're getting a high team coupon on a one year, uh, like Phoenix, for instance. And maybe you're getting 15, 20%, 25%, maybe it's something like Tesla. But like for like instrument, Coinbase would pay like 45%. And I'm like, okay, well, like, and so the, the, the round of all this discussion, I think my thinking, when I look at all this, I think it's difficult to understand how much is priced into something. Yeah. Because I, I think you have to focus on price. Absolutely. Like, 
you cannot just be like a fundamental in a vacuum. Like you have to pay attention to your thesis. What do you, what is baked into your assumptions around anything you're touching and how much of that is already priced in? And it's a, it's a most difficult question. Um, because someone might lazily say, oh, like I, I have a 10-year view. Like no problem. Like this just continue to go up. I'm like, well, no, if it's priced to perfection, if everything that you believe is going to happen in 10 years, everyone also believes that, then then you're, you're setting yourself up for like making a terrible return because if, there's no margin. Like Seth Klarman, there's no margin of safety for, for, for that to deviate. Like if, for instance, say if, for instance, the, the value of the price of Solana, like the price of Ethereum or Solana right, right now reflects – Everything that we've talked about, like all the positive catalysts that, you know, there's going to be massive e-commerce and payments and, and, and all this like value accrual back to the, to the L1. If, if that already is baked in to the price today, then you shouldn't be investing because there are, there are assets out there that where you probably can find a greater margin of safety. You just have to believe that in your model, if you're not baking in a bear case and a bull case, yeah. and that fan of returns is not interesting – and and you're you're buying something that if there's a marginal deviation, like for in in that not playing out, then you sure as hell know that that price is going to be very skewed to to underperform. Um, and I think I think options are interesting when you go out and look at that and how they're priced. I think it will it will give you a really good understanding of how the market how looks at the name. Um, yeah. That's why the the exercise with Coinbase is interesting because I think the market is sort of, you know, as as Howard Marks says, like the pendulum is is swinging to extremes of total left for dead. Like Solana was left for dead at eight. It's not left for dead at sixty six. Now it's interesting. I think it's working and it has a whole, you know, a lot of reflexivity and and that's positive for fundamentals too. But the margin of safety is much is different. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to pay attention to this stuff. I think that's I think that's a good good pod right there. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think like there are other pods that just go and give wild. I, I have some content for you. If we maybe we wrap it with some some content yes, that you like. I, so I, I, I listened to too. two phenomenal founder interviews this week. One was with uh, Ryan Peterson of Flexport, and one was uh-huh. with Brian Chesky of Airbnb. I, I think that okay. Ryan Chesky will end up going down as one of the the greatest entrepreneurs actually of, of our generation. Um, he's. I'm gonna send you this. It's on. Uh, it was on this guy Lenny Lenny's podcast. Um, okay. Anyways, I'll send it to you. It's phenomenal. Uh, the other one was uh, Ryan Peterson on Twenty Minute VC, and oh, Harry he, Stebbings. Yeah, Harry Stebbings. And um, actually, there's this one part that I really like that you'll like because I know you love thinking these prob. I know you love thinking these probabilities. Where Ryan Peterson basically <laughs> says, uh, Harry Stebbings goes, "Did you feel pressure when?" you got that $8 billion valuation on Flexport. He goes, no, because our valuation is not $8 billion. He goes, when you get a valuation on the company, that is a a combined probability of a bunch of different things. So there's a, he goes, there's a a probability that our valuation is $80 billion, a probability that our valuation one day is a trillion dollars, probability that we are valued at maybe 10 million bucks because we go to, and and some probability that we're valued at $0. So when I think about our value, like that is a moment in time, a sliver that you take all of those probabilities and you put them at eight expected value. Yeah, exactly. And um, now there's obviously a classical form way to value a company. Yeah. You you take the cash flows and you discount them back. And, 
but yeah, but, um, but but even the cash flows like when you're making it that assumption on cash flows that factors in some sort of state of probabilistic state in the future over exactly, 10 years exactly. and a terminal value yeah look guys probabilistic thinking is the most valuable thing that you can inject yourself into your framework have you read thinking in bets yeah any duke any or duke, any yeah that's yeah, great yeah there's there's a whole host of, of of literature and just books that you can or even interviews that you can that you can read thinking bets is probably the best yeah. way to think but it really um, just it, it really forces you to challenge everything and and when you think in you when you think in probabilities, you appreciate that a probability is not static; it's constantly changing, and that forces you to constantly be process, process, to process new information, to update your probabilities of, of that expected value, whether it's eight or eighty. And I think that the more interesting assets are ones where you have a what is called a positive skew, like positive asymmetry, yeah. where the downside is fairly muted. And even in the worst case scenario, you get your money back. But in the best case of outcomes, and this is, I think, crypto very much reflects this is, we don't really kind of know the, the, the full extent, but in a version where everything in the internet is being settled in blockchains, it is not a $1.4 trillion asset class, folks. It, it just is not. And so what's the probability of that? And I think you constantly look at activity and you say, like, NFTs are a generational moment like younger folks love it they're here to stay and you might look at all the volume near term and it's just noise because it's just beta users but long long term you just if you believe nfts will do x if you believe games are going to do y payments like everything just moves on chain and you support that with a number of like socioeconomic shifts and changes like yeah i think is it going to matter if you bought at plus 10 plus 20 Arguably not, but it's it's still important psychologically to just manage your emotions and prepare yourself for what will be a very wild journey. But that journey can be really positive where you constantly learn and maybe listen to Empire, <laughs> or it can be extremely difficult because you constantly beat yourself up and ego gets in the way because you just you just somehow believe that you can't make mistakes and that's that's the worst form because you will always the nature of investing is you're going to make more mistakes hopefully you make less mistakes than 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 winning outcomes and the net of that is a whole host of learning and and positive returns so anyways that's the pod let's wrap it up let's wrap it up sir hopefully people can listen through my muted uh and sinus you got the sniffles really coming out (laughs) yeah i've been resisting but anyways uh thanks so much everyone for listening and if there's anything you want to listen or talk about or there or guests that you want to have on the pod let us know i think uh yeah you guys should tweet at us we see all those tweets when you tweet out guest recommendations or topics you want us to cover we we see all those so yeah i guess as a teaser we have a really good lineup coming up Right. We've uh, we'll tease out one episode. We have a really good episode with Kane, uh, Kane Warwick, on dropping on Tuesday. So we wanted this to basically be like conversation on synthetics and, and Infinex, but it ended up just kind of being Kane's. I actually took just really took a backseat because you have such a good relationship with Kane and you've known him for so many years now. It kind of just was uh, Kane's musings on the market, synthetics mm-hmm. and Infinex, but also the perps market, L twos, DAOs, uh, stable coins. Is really interesting conversation. So yeah, that drops Tuesday. Awesome. Yana, great to see you. Uh, Be well.
Everyone, thank you so much for watching today's episode. Really hope you enjoyed it. We wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming Digital Asset Summit in London, March 18th to 20th. Santi and I got your back. Seats are limited and we hooked you up with a 20% off discount code. It is Empire20. If you heard it earlier in the podcast, there's a little competition running at BlockWorks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So when you register for the Digital Asset Summit, make sure you use our code Empire20. See you in London.